You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment because science was on my side. Hey, everyone, welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I'm your host, Misha Gajewski, and this week our stories are all about making observation and noticing those tiny little details. Scientists are always making observations and, you know, noting down those small changes and things to draw conclusions. I mean, I think that's what doing research is all about. But then again, I'm not a scientist, so what do I know? But while I can't relate to doing this observation in an experimental setting, I definitely feel like a scientist every time I engage in my favorite pastime, people watching. I love observing how people interact at airports, on first dates, you know, how parents try to wrangle their unruly toddler. I'm fascinated by human behavior, and I'm always trying to figure out what makes people tick. Like every time I'm going through security at the airport, there's always that one clueless person who still doesn't know that they can't bring an entire water bottle on the plane. Like last time I was there, this girl literally got into a fight with a security guard on being allowed to bring her entire bottle of Gatorade through. But I mean, I didn't get a chance to see it all play out because the security guard in my line yelled at me for holding up everyone else. Um, anyway, our first story is from Caitlin Starovich. It was recorded at Factory Theatre in Toronto in January this year. The theme that night was focus. When it was 2018, and I am 20 hours into my flight to Rwanda, and I haven't slept a wink because I am obsessively reading, rereading, and then re-rereading all of my notes because I'm about to make a film about endangered mountain gorillas and Diane Fossey, who is the first scientist to ever study them in the wild. And uh, I'm a documentary film producer, and my passion is telling stories about uh, strong women in science. So when I was given the opportunity to co-direct a film about the great apes and some of the greatest women in science, I was over the moon. And then I was terrified. <laughs> because failure is not an option. I have made documentaries before, but this one is huge. It's world-class. It's narrated by Sandra Oh. Yes. And uh, I want to do a great, great job. And um, not to mention that I'm co-directing with my father, who is a famous filmmaker. So, like, no pressure at all to prove myself. Um, and then also, there is just one chance to film these gorillas because they are so endangered and they're so hard to find. 
Um, again, no pressure at all, one chance. So um, in 1985, when Diane Fossey died, there was only 200 mountain gorillas left in the entire planet. They are incredibly endangered, and um, they're also very, very hard to find. They all live in the mountains, the volcanoes, between uh, the border of Rwanda and the Democratic Republic of the Congo. So uh, we see these mountains, and our guide, Kevin Innocent, points to the top, and he says, that's where we're going tomorrow. It's not going to be easy. And I say, that's fine. I'm going to be cool. It's not a big deal. Uh, only half believing myself uh, because I'm like relatively young and like relatively fit. Plus, I have a very cute windbreaker and like super cute hiking boots that I bought. So I feel good about myself. So we leave at daybreak and it's after a huge deluge, so much rain and um, this is a tropical climate, so when it rains, it rains. And we are accompanied by four rangers who are carrying AK-47s. And I'm worried, and I say, like, are the gorillas that dangerous? They're vegetarian. <laughs> and they say, oh, no, no, don't worry, don't worry. It's not for the gorillas. It's in case of kidnappers. <laughs> and I'm like, what? These were not in my notes. Um, so um, we leave, and of course you have to remember that uh, as we're going up this volcano, we have to carry all of our film equipment on our backs because there's no roads. So we have 14 huge cases of film equipment. So we have 10 people helping us carry gear, we have four crew, we have uh, rangers, we have guides, and we have a young Rwandan scientist named Nadia Nionazee. And we look like a bit of a strange sight walking through this town of Musanze with all this like stuff on our back until we come to a stone wall that we have to climb to get into this dense, dense forest. And uh, Nadia and I are gabbing away. We're like the only two women on the crew and we're getting along famously. And uh, she's the kind of scientist that uh, will say, like, I was studying two gorillas once. And you think she's gonna say something really sciencey? And then she says, and I realized, he wants to kick his brother's ass because he stole his girlfriend. <laughs> so it's like a very Kardashian interpretation of gorilla life, and I am there for it. <laughs> So we're hiking through this dense forest, this uh, grass up to our knees for an hour, and I'm thinking, I am awesome at hiking volcanoes. I'm really good at this. This is fine. I'm handling this. And then our guide turns back and says, okay, we're almost at the foot of the volcano. <laughs> and then it's like the world tilted to a 45 degree angle. We were up to our knees in mud. There were jagged rocks everywhere. They're hacking away with machetes because you can't see more than one foot in front of you. And it's so difficult. 
And we did this for six hours, but it felt like 60. And then we did it again. And I'm getting worried because we haven't seen a single sign of any gorillas. And I'm covered in mud from my no longer cute windbreaker to my no longer cute uh, um, hiking boots. And I'm getting loopy from the uh, altitude because it's getting so high and I'm getting worried. We haven't found any gorillas. What are we going to do? And um, just when it feels like we can't go on anymore, we reach a clearing and it's almost like the birds became quiet. And I stopped trying to like look cool. I had been keeping it together, trying to be positive for the crew, whereas inside I was just losing it. And we had arrived at Karasoki, which is the former site of Diane Fossey's research camp. And I see the destroyed ruins of her cabin, and I see the handmarked graves of the gorillas that have been murdered by poachers. And it's uh, Titus, Uncle Bert, Macho, Quelly, Digit. And then the last grave is Diane Fossey, who was murdered by poachers in 1985. And she's buried next to her favorite gorilla, Digit, who was the first gorilla to ever come and research her, to come and investigate, who's this strange white gorilla? And he did his own scientific research. She was studying them, and he was studying her. And it's then that I am just overcome with emotion. Uh, I feel like feelings of guilt, shame, powerlessness, because here I am thinking about my stupid film, and I'm surrounded by graves of murdered gorillas. And I felt selfish. And it's then that I hear Nadia say a quote from Diane Fossey. Once you realize the value of all life, you dwell less on what is past and concentrate more on the preservation of the future. And we sit in that moment for a while with the spirits of these gorillas around us, with the spirit of Diane around us. And I realize that no matter how this hard this journey is, we have to show the world about these endangered gorillas so we can help try to save them. And so we put our packs back on our backs. We climb four more hours up the volcano and every Muscle in my body is screaming. My back is aching. I am so tired. It's getting, getting to the point where two of the guides have to hold me up by my arms because I keep falling down to my knees because I'm so delirious from the altitude. And I'm starting to think, we've come this far and we found no gorillas. We failed. We haven't found any of them. And I'm shuffling behind Nadia, uh, looking down in the mud, trying not to fall down for the 300th time. And she stops, and I almost bump into her. And she says, do you see? 
And I look around, and I have no idea what she's talking about. <laughs> and all I see is mud, I see dirt, I see failure. And I only hear my own labored breathing. And then she slowly points up. And above us is a tiny one-year-old baby gorilla, three feet above us in the trees. And he's so tiny and so fluffy and so beautiful and so inquisitive. He's really shimmying down the branch. He wants to get a better look at us. And he comes closer and closer and we're locking eyes together. And I'm thinking about him and he's thinking about me. And I can't help but remember Digit. And this little baby is the legacy of a species that has been hanging on despite all odds. And he gets a little closer and I can tell he's studying me. And I can tell he's thinking, who's this white gorilla? What's she doing in my forest? And where did she get that cute windbreaker and fab hiking boots? <laughs> and then I hear Nadi go, Psst, and she nods her head to the right. And we go over to a little clearing, and there's the whole family. Huge silverbacks, over 400 pounds. Mothers with infants, teenagers, uncles, and they're all so gentle. The big silverbacks are taking care of the babies, patting them gently. And the little baby that I was engaging with uh, goes over and plays with his friends with no knowledge of this graveyard that we have just visited. And we start filming. And it's magical just how similar they are to humans. Just seeing mothers breastfeeding, infants throwing temper tantrums, lazy uncles napping. <laughs> and the little baby is being an absolute brat. He's pulling his brother's hair and just being like a total hellion. And we film for hours until the family decides that that's enough screen time for today. It's time to go find a place to sleep for the night. And I make eye contact with that little baby once more. And he yawns. And I see his mother put him gently on her back. And the family disappears again into the forest. And there I am, just in silence and total awe. I can't believe the experience I've just had. And it's then in that moment that I really understood that quote from Diane Fossey. Once you realize the value of all life, you dwell less on the past and concentrate more on the preservation of the future. That was Caitlin Starovich. 
Caitlin Starovich is a director slash producer for film and television. Her work focuses on the climate crisis, animal rights, women in STEM, and intersectional feminism. Her films have been nominated for Best Documentary in Canada at the Canadian Screen Awards twice, and once for Best Documentary Director in Canada. Also, her latest documentary is narrated by Jane Fonda, so she's pretty dope. Okay, before we continue with today's episode, a couple of reminders. This month, we have shows coming up in St. Louis, New York, Dallas, and D.C. We're also hosting a special partnership show with Capital Storytelling on April 14th in Sacramento, California. Visit storyclatter.org shows for more details and to get your tickets. If you'd like to learn more about how to tell a science story, check out storyclutter.org education. We offer private workshops both online and in person for groups, and we offer public courses for individuals online as well. Also, if you're not already following us on social media, what are you doing? Follow us at Story Collider. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And finally, if you're a fan of this podcast, and if you, like us, believe in the power these stories have to reveal the humanity behind science, to change your understanding of how science happens and who it belongs to, please consider donating to The Story Collider at storyclutter.org donate. You can also sign up to support us on a monthly basis at patreon.com slash thestoryclutter. Our Patreon supporters can receive an ad-free version of this podcast, as well as occasional bonus episodes and other gifts. We're so grateful to everyone who helps make our work possible. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Okay, our second story is from Danny Wisentowski. It was recorded in St. Louis at the St. Louis Public Radio Public Media Commons in February 2023. The theme that night was variables. It is a dark and stormy night in St. Louis. It is a Saturday in April 2014, and I am doing the same thing I've been doing for the past several weekends. I am in a small, nondescript office building in the Central West End. I am locked in a room with strangers, and I'm watching them fail. It's an escape room, and as a reporter, it's the first escape room I've ever heard of coming to St. Louis, and that's news. News, which is the thing, ostensibly, that I do as a staff writer at the Riverfront Times. 
where I'm barely a year into my first professional journalism job, and so much of my job is summarizing. I go to meetings, I spend hours there, I write what was said, I figure out what was alleged, what was cautioned, what was worried, what was declared, what was added, all of the important verbs that you need to know the news. But this story, this escape room, I immediately know what I want to do. I, I don't want to interview the people who've been in the escape room, and I don't, I don't want to even go in the escape room myself. How boring that would be. How blasé. No, I want to be in that room, not once, not twice. I want to be in there over and over again, five times, ten times. I want to see the entire army of humanity throw themselves at the same puzzles. <laughs> I want to become a master of this space. I want to know what they're going to do before they do it, and I want to know the mistakes they're going to make before they're even considering it. Because this, this is the fly-on-the-wall fantasy for a reporter. I'm, I'm going to be the primary source. I will see the action. I will see who said what when. When the decisions are made, I will be coming in later to reconstruct the sausage from all the dropped quotes and things that people put up and then tracing it back to the sausage factory. No, I'm going to see it made. And I have to tell you, um, this idea, it, it becomes kind of an obsession for me because I it, it seems to break the code. It breaks the log jam that I just feel in my job. and. It won't be like, it'll be like that quote from Watchmen. You know, I'm not locked in there with them. They're locked in there with me. <laughs> and it has a perfect ending. The ending writes itself the perfect escape. And all I got to do is just watch and write notes. And I'll have every scene, every conflict, the ups and downs, the disasters, the victories. It's a dream. And I... I get in those rooms and I, it's, it turns out to be incredibly easy to convince the creator of this escape room to let me just piggyback along and watch as many people as I can stand. And so I start going to the escape room again and again. And I have to tell you, I do get to see the thing that I love to see, which is choices being made. I love to see that on two sides of the room, two completely different groups will suddenly have this lightning strike and they'll understand the code to one puzzle fits with the cipher to the other, and a wordplay actually fits with a puzzle that they had discovered earlier. And you can see these incredible strands of friendship, of connection, of, of even tension, but people working together. But I have to tell you that for every moment of people working together, it is a drop in the ocean of people falling apart. <laughs> The mask is off in these rooms. There is no cohesion. There is no teamwork. And I wish I could tell you why. Was it smart people only listening to smart people or dumb people finding the only other dumb person there? It's not so simple. It's not so simple. I watch a couple in their 30s insistently tell their nine-year-old son, just as the door is about to be locked, stand in the corner. Don't bother us while we're doing this. And of course, they're not listening to him. They're not listening to him when he is the only one in the room who can interpret the clue correctly to a puzzle and they spend 10 minutes on something. And of course, they fail. 
There's the woman who gets the attention of the entire room at one moment and brings them away from the pile of scrabble tiles and locked white, black and white boxes, and she points at the ceiling, tracing the lines, connecting the panels together, and she's telling them, don't you see it? Don't you see it? There is no puzzle on the ceiling. There is no clue hidden there. It was in the scrabble tiles. It's always in the scrabble tiles. And I watched them fail. I watched them fail over and over again. And I, I, I went back and I look in my, my notebook that I'm writing at this point and underline, I just, I wonder what are they doing here? Why did they come here if they're just going to fall apart? And that's why I'm here once again in this locked room. And as the storm clouds gather outside, the door locks and the numbers tumble down. And I have no hope for this team. See, it's, you know, like some of you may, uh, may uh, have some uh, connection to when the weather gets bad in St. Louis, people just cancel events <laughs> and they just turn tail. And this was the case just before the last team of the day, a team of 10 calls and says, we're canceling because of the rain and the thunderstorm and the weather warnings. And we get ready to go home, but wait, actually they're not all canceling. Two people from this team of 10 have decided that they are gonna go for it. They're gonna solve this entire escape room on their own. They're gonna pit their two brains together against a puzzle that is intended for many more brains. <laughs> and so it doesn't really matter how many good ideas they have or whether they work together or whether their relationship is irreparably damaged from this moment. <laughs> they don't have enough brains. They are literally the worst team that has tried the entire puzzle enterprise. And the numbers hit zero on yet another night. It's about my seventh team. And I have never been exhausted by a story like this. I am just wishing I was in a city council meeting, <laughs> taking down hours of notes, reading a lawsuit, something where I could feel like I was accomplishing something. But I get out of that room and I, I meet up with uh, the two other folks who are there. There's the co-creator of the escape room. His name is Nir. There's the photographer for the Riverfront Times, Tom Carlson. And I look at Nir and Nir has this expression of disappointment on his face. And the thing is that this is actually Nir's second escape room attempt. This only a few months before. His pilot though, 12 teams, more than 100 people, not one was able to solve the problems and puzzles and escape as he intended. And the one that did, they took the final puzzle, a large chess piece, a chess set with a magnetized key inside. You would have to play a game and you know, do a whole thing. And they just took the board and shook it upside down like they were trying to get a pick out of a guitar. And they broke it. They broke the final puzzle. And that's how they got out. And Nier's expression, mimics mine, because I came into this already knowing the story I wanted, and I'm not getting what I wanted. And I'm starting to wonder, you know, if I'm here watching people fail, is near one of those people? Am I one of those people? Am I the piece that's out of place? Is the observer somehow throwing things off? I don't say a word to these teams in the room, and they don't say a word to me, but I'm there. I'm shifting atoms, I'm, I'm being hit by ion rays. Who knows what I'm doing? I worry that Nier is going to pull the plug. Maybe I should pull the plug. And outside, the skies in St. Louis open up and the rain pours down. 
and the thunder cracks. And near I and Tom get into the elevator and share you know, a, mor a morose moment of not getting what we want, of not having the control maybe we thought we knew, that we thought we knew we really had. And I start to think, am I learning something new about myself in this moment? But before that, I learned something else. I learned what the sound of an elevator dying sounds like. <laughs> it's, it's actually not really a sound, it's, it's the absence of a sound. It's a hum that stopped humming. It's a machine that is suddenly <sighs> And so we stand there, three grown men, suddenly sweating in an elevator whose doors are not open on a Saturday night during a thunderstorm. And we're trapped. Now, if you're ever in this situation, you should do what, what Nier did, which is he's the master of the escape rooms. You should always try the obvious. Try the front door, try the door. Just, you, you know, it might not work, but it's worth doing. The buttons don't work. The obvious is not working. The emergency buttons don't work. We have no service in the cell phone. It, it, we have no service in the elevator. When's the next time someone's gonna be around here? That's, that's the thought in my head. How many hours? 24, 36? There's nobody in this office building at all. I wonder about, you know, actually pushing open the doors, but then I, I get a sudden vision of, you know, what if the elevator starts moving again and I'm suddenly starring in an unwanted reboot of Two and a Half Men? <laughs> and so we just stay there in this static, this panic. And sometimes that's all you need to do because something amazing happens. The elevator actually starts moving again. Well, first it moves kind of sideways, which, which felt weird. It was like it shifted into some other dimension, but it's a dimension where we were moving, which was good. And so we're moving down. The third floor light turns off, now it's the second floor light. We're gonna hit the ground floor next and, and we'll be done. And we hit the ground floor and we're still moving. There's only three floors in this building, but we are definitely uh, in motion. The elevator is still going down for another 20 seconds, and it halts. There's no light on the floor levels. We are off the map <laughs> of the building. And I, again, I'm wondering, 24 hours, 36 hours, where would they even find us now? It's like a computer's reset and it's just gone to its initial state. That we're in a mechanical blue screen of death and it sent us to a grave. It seems like it. And so again, we're sitting there in silence. There's, there's no puzzles here. There's no riddles to solve. I look up at the ceiling and I think about John McClane in the movie Die Hard. Re really any movie with an elevator problem there's a hatch, right? And so I'm looking up there and I'm trying to follow me. Well, there's always, there's always a hatch. How do they, how do you climb out of there? And after a while, I, I just feel foolish because there's nothing on the ceiling. <laughs> there's no way to get anywhere. We're trapped and I'm not John McClane and we're not in the movie Die Hard and there's no bathroom and there's no water and I'm trying not to think about what they'll find when they open those elevator doors. When? In 48 hours. Who knows? And so the tension breaks. We don't even, I don't even remember having a discussion about this, but suddenly our hands are in the crack of the door and we are forcing it open to find out where we are. And that's really the key variable. Where are we? If you can solve for that, you can 
have a path to go. And so I await the first real actionable piece of evidence, and we are faced as the doors open with a very confusing sight. We are faced with a wall of boxes. <laughs> All the way from the ground up to the ceiling, cardboard boxes. Well, that didn't help. It doesn't help us know where we are. We are still lost. So we start taking the boxes down and start to notice they're, they're cleaning fluids. There's a mop in the back I can see somewhere, and it's like Clorox sponsored an Edgar Allan Poe novel a little bit. <laughs> still not really sure why we're there, but we unload the boxes into the elevator. It's the only place to put them, and we create some men-sized holes in the boxes, and we venture out into the darkness. And there's a small room and a small hallway, some more cleaning fluids, boxes, mops. Okay, we have our first important variable. Where are we? We're in a closet. <laughs> We're in a closet that is connected to an elevator, that is connected to a shaft, connected to a building that has not the same number of floors as the building where it turns out where we are. Okay, these pieces are not actually connecting. It's not going so great for my mental map, putting all the pieces together. And there's another problem, and it's the one that is starting to really concern me because I feel like I'm losing my mind. I'm hearing music. And the music isn't coming from the elevator, it was coming through the boxes. And at first I thought, oh, it's just, you know, the enclosure, it's just the panic. But the music is real. And the music is, it's dance music. It's tango music. And we really have no choice but to go forward. And so the three of us approach the door to the closet, the only thing which we know to exist in the universe, <laughs> and we open it. And we venture forth, and we're bathed in a soft red light. And I look down, and a few dozen feet away, I can see couples, about 10 or so of them, dancing, dancing to the music, and they are totally oblivious to us. Just three grown, sweaty guys who've just materialized out of a closet. We are aliens in a strange land and nobody's like even here to greet us. But we turn and there's actually a bar right across from us, just uh, 10 feet away. There's a middle-aged woman behind the bar and she looks at us and she has this expression like she's embarrassed for us. Like she's asking, what are you even doing here? She doesn't say a word. We don't say a word to her. And without any discussion, we shuffle out toward the sound of the storm and the rain, and we leave. And of course, if you turn around and look at the building, there's no mystery. There's an office building, and next to it, there's a dance studio with a, with a walk-down kind of stairs. And maybe at some point, these buildings were connected, and there were some renovations, and things were walled off, and a closet was created, and a floor was erased. <laughs> we go back to our cars, and I laugh because how, how could you not? It was so much, but I, I go home that night and I go to work on my story. And a few days later, well, rather I should say about a week later, with this, this progress, this process continues, this self-torture, going in the room, watching the failure, waiting for an ending that just won't come, but eventually it does. The final team, number 27, we're talking more than 200 people, who have burned out on these exact same puzzles. The very last one, a team made of mostly high school wrestling coaches <laughs> and their significant, significant others. 
And I watch as the last minutes tick down. No team has ever gotten this far to be confronted with the final two locked boxes covered in strange eldritch symbols that they do not have time to solve and which they do not have the energy to commit themselves to. And I've, I've seen this before already. I've seen a hundred people lose their will and resign themselves to failure, but not this time. This time, as a wrestling coach hands his girlfriend one of the boxes, something incredible happens, something magical in that moment. The two boxes, as if transported by fate, they pass over each other just so, just as they were designed and built to, and they align, but not on the outside, on the inside, where the magnets that have been so carefully placed there with the intended result that has yet to, be, has yet to come to any fruition, and those magnets kiss and they unlatch, wow. and the box opens, and there's the key, and there's the woman, the boyfriend, the, the girlfriend of a high school wrestling coach who has just tried shaking that box like he's hoping it breaks, <laughs> and there's the key, and they have no idea why, but they're free. <laughs> they're free, and the door opens, and there's numbers on the, the clock, and there's been an escape. There's been an ending, finally. You know, control is such an alluring thing. You know, Nier thought he had built the perfect escape room. And I, I thought I'd found the perfect story. And somewhere, some engineers thought they had built the perfect elevator. <laughs> but just because you can see all the pieces doesn't mean that you know what they are, what they mean, where they're placed, what the big picture is, what it looks like outside. Control is really like a locked room, and the only one who can get you out is you. Thank you. That was Danny Wisentowski. Danny Wisentowski is a journalist and storyteller in St. Louis, where he reported on politics, crime, development, education, and other beats. Before making the jump to St. Louis Public Radio in 2022, Danny worked for more than eight years as a staff writer for St. Louis alt-weekly, The Riverfront Times, where his investigative and feature stories won multiple local and national awards. In 2020, he co-produced and hosted the podcast American Skyjacker, chronicling the life and crimes of plane hijacker Martin McNally. Danny lives in Bevo Mill with a black cat and many notebooks. Same, Danny. Same. Except for Bevo Mill. <laughs> the Story Collider is so grateful to Caitlin and Danny for sharing their stories with us. The Story Collider is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by Aaron Barker, executive director and co-founder of The Story Collider, with help from me, managing producer Misha Gajewski, and senior podcast editor Jen Chen. Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board and the rest of our staff, including Managing Director Anne-Marie Lonsdale, Science Advisory Fellow Edith Gonzalez, and our Operations Manager Lindsay Cooper, without whom none of this would be possible. The stories featured in today's episode were produced by Sarah Mazrui and me, Misha Gajewski, and by Sam Lyons and Gabe Montesanti, respectively. Our theme music is by Ghost, and next week we'll be back with a special episode with stories from people who took our storytelling workshops— you won't want to miss it. Until then, thanks so much for listening. <laughs>